0: Hi, everybody, this is Bill Kennedy with the Arden Labs podcast. And today, our very special guest is Nick Jackson. Hey, Nick.
1: Hey, Bill, how you doing? And thank you so much for, for having me on as guest.
0: Oh, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you finding some time in your incredibly busy schedule to come talk to us for an hour. Anytime. So our podcast is really a podcast about you. And yeah. we've gotten to meet a few times, and we've we've done some training and stuff together. But we've never really got a chance to sit down and talk about our histories. And this is going to be that, uh, at least for me, that opportunity. I'm really excited to hear uh, a little bit of your background because you're so you, you're one of the people, at least in my life, that I kind of put up there is really technical. And I know that I've got these technical questions, you know, on the system side and things like that. I, I got to reach out to Nick. And so I really want to explore, you know, that part of you too, right? Like, like, how did that come about? What, Where where was your interest there? And I, and usually my very first question that I love to ask every guest is to kind of think back on those first kind of memories you have working on a computer, not necessarily playing with it as more as it became a tool or you're being productive with it, something like that.
1: Probably when I, when I first started to use a computer as a tool would be music production. So I I was, as a, as a kind of a kid, you know, you play in bands and um, not just mucking about at home. And, and I kind of realized that I could use a computer to record music. And I, I kind of had played around with early sequences and things and like the Commodore Amiga and stuff like that. But then I realized you could start using things like Cubase and Cakewalk. And, and it was like, you got digital samplers and you can do, it was super rudimentary. I mean, you're talking 486 computers like 25 years ago, but I think that was probably the, the first time I realized a computer wasn't a tool, what was a tool and not, not a toy, um, which, which is how I'd, I'd kind of seen it growing up.
0: You dropped the 486. So we're, we're talking like early nineties then when you're, when you're sequencing with music or is it earlier than that?
1: Yeah, I couldn't remember exactly, like my first computer, my reg- real computer was a 25 megahertz 486, which had a massive four megabytes of RAM. And, and I think it had like a whopping 120 megabytes hard disk in it. I mean, you know, you're talking cutting edge technology here, like 14 inch CRT display, might have even done 800 by 600. In, in terms of the screen resolution and, and this thing cost me a lot of money. I mean a lot of money. At the time, I think I paid like eleven, 1200 pounds. So if, if you want to do the conversion in dollars, that would have been like two and a half thousand bucks in the, the, the exchange rate of the time. So for somebody who, who didn't really have a I mean, had a job, I was pretty much at college and you know doing doing part-time jobs. That cost me a huge amount of um, huge amount of my salary, and it was, by retrospect, pretty terrible. It's for less power than you have in an iPhone these days.
0: Yeah, but see, that's amazing to me, right? So you're in university at this time that you make this massive investment, especially at the time, like when I'm in university, I'm just trying to keep 20 bucks f- for Saturday to buy some beer, right? And then trying to figure out where I'm going to get my next 20 bucks, but... This is a, a a major investment. So what are you studying in university at this time? Are you in computer science and you were like, I need this? Or like, yeah, what's going on at the time?
1: Going into computer science wasn't wasn't a straightforward decision for me. I didn't like really ever recognize that you could make money working with, with computers, which is kind of strange because my, my uncle used to work for IBM. But like, I never, I just never really sort of, realize this so at the time like the things that interested me were um ancient history so i was like really interested in ancient history and archaeology and what i was thinking was hey i'm going to do my my a-levels in in ancient history and archaeology and and i'm going to go and be an archaeologist i mean like to say i was heavily influenced by indiana jones movies was probably more more to the truth than anything but that's kind of where i was thinking right and and I was also interested in science, so I was thinking like I want to do archaeology, but maybe something on the scientific side, like something to do with maybe like carbon dating. I, I didn't really know, right?
0: What year did you start university? Just so we can have kind of a timeline.
1: About in eighteen nineteen, so it's about twenty eight years ago. A long time yeah. ago. I can't even do the mathematics on that without a calculator. <laughs> so far, the numbers are too big.
0: Do you remember what year it was then? Then it's like nineteen ninety. 1990... Or I don't even know what that is.
1: So music-wise, you're looking at things like the the Pixies, Nirvana.
0: Yeah, like 90, 90 Yeah, eighty nine. Yeah, so in nineties, right? 1991, right? That's when yeah. I was in university, right?
1: Okay. And so, so I didn't. So originally, I was like, I don't know what to do, and I didn't get the grades to to, to do a course in in archaeology because like you got to be pretty smart, and I didn't study because I was too busy enjoying myself. <laughs> um. So eventually, I enrolled in a in a course to do business studies, because I thought, "Hey, I'm going to be a businessman." That's like that's what everybody wants to be, right? And it's kind of like that aspirational thing. And I realized I hated that pretty pretty quickly. and And that's when I I took like a year, pretty much, uh, quit quit business studies, and I went and took a job at the environment agency. And when I was working at the environment agency, the uh, it was just when everything was starting to get like uh, technical technological so the, the environment agencies government agency in the UK which which looks after river levels and doing flood warning and things like that so I was working I got a job there and all of a sudden it was like oh hey Nick do you know how to use computers right and I'm like yeah so they gave me this data logger and it was this little Scion thing and they're like do you think you could write a program to connect this up to the remote data loggers and it was literally as abstract a conversation like that. And I'm like, full of confidence. Oh, yeah, sure. I could do that. <laughs> and I had no idea what I was doing.
0: What did you, what did you get hired to do? I, I didn't mean to interrupt there, but what, what did you get hired to do?
1: It was predominantly just doing data processing, right? I mean, it was like, it was just number entry for the, for the most part. And, and I kind of was doing that and it was fine. It was paying pretty good above minimum wage
0: is that why you took the job not because it was the work you wanted to do because the money
1: i just needed a job right i mean i think that was the that was the main thing and i got super lucky because i found a, a job for a really good company and let alone that th- there was a lady who was my boss a lady named vivian turner and she was really just wonderful right she was like um a, a massive inspiration so she would she would really be patient and, you know, like I was a kid, so I'd be like phoning in on a Monday morning with a sore throat, right? Sore throat in my butt. I'd been boozing all weekend. But, you know, she was really tolerant and really supportive and, and she she would help me and, and like just gave me so many opportunities. I'm really, really thankful. So it started off just doing the data processing, but then I started working on these uh, river monitoring, like data collection um, devices for interfacing with the um the river monitoring and rainfall stations um and and they kind of just started doing that and then i suddenly realized oh i really enjoy this like i didn't realize you could use computers and
0: and and it's it's a job as well let me me ask you one question before you move on how is the data how is the data collected because it obviously well maybe not obviously that wasn't happening over cell phones. No, at that there was point. no phone. So were devices Yeah, so how did you get the data in your hands from these devices out in the field? Yeah. Well so so originally, right, what would happen is
1: a a field agent would drive out to one of these remote data stations in the middle of the countryside. They would plug their laptop in to these remote loggers over an RS two three two, which is the the big old, you know, square thing that probably looks more like you connect a printer up to or something an rs232 connector and they would just download it now the problem with the laptops was the batteries were rubbish because it was early laptops they were heavy they weren't waterproof they were expensive and 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 they were just always breaking down so the 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 intention was that they needed a better way so they bought these um like little they were actually scion devices i don't i don't know if you remember those but they were like little pocket computers, but they were they were specifically designed so they were waterproof and you could literally, like IPv6, you could drop them in a stream and they'd be fine. And the batteries, i got a feeling they just used like four AA batteries. So you could just change the batteries in them. So the, the, the engineers loved them because they were no hassle. Keep your laptop if you want to do some email or something like that. But when you're in the field, you just use this thing because it, it never broke on you. So that's that was originally how they do it. They they literally started to modernise, and, and obviously now it's all automated and and, and stuff like that. But you know, you, even today in some of those remote river stations, you'll struggle to find like a cell phone reception, or you'll really struggle the expense to put a, a fixed line in for a, um, a phone or something like that. I I got super lucky. I got super lucky because I ended up working with Vivian. I got super lucky because I knew how to computer. And I was one of the few people at the time, and and ultimately what that did was that that made me realize that I could do this as a, as a job, and it was something that I loved to do. And that's when I started to kind of, I suppose, follow things more seriously and, and went back, um, finished my degree in, in computer science.
0: That's what I was going to ask you. So you've got this good paying job for where you're at. You're learning. You you found your passion here. I was wondering if you went back to university and finished that degree were you able to continue to work there at the same time you were doing both
1: you know they were they were amazing they let me i was doing like part-time i think i couldn't tell you how many hours a week but i mean university in the uk is it's not a huge amount of of hours per week it was like probably 15 to 20 like maximum in terms of taught taught lectures everything else is you know self-study so i'd i'd pretty much do a full day i'd either be at university, or I'd, um, I was at work. And luckily, the, the university I went to, Northumbria, was literally just down the road from from the, um, the environment agency's office. So I could jump back in between classes and stuff some days. And that, that was great, right? Because it meant that I could, I could support myself whilst, um, whilst I was at university and, and I could learn at the same time. And they were, yeah, they were really, really good to me. I, I've got a lot of, um, a lot of thanks to, to 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 give to the Environment Agency and to Vivian.
0: Now the work you're doing at the Environment Agency is really software development, right? You're you're massaging data. You're doing yeah, doing data science. I, I tell everybody everything we do is data science, really. At the end of the day, I mean, you're doing real data science there in terms of getting these raw data files and I'm assuming preparing them for whatever reports or what kind of databases were they using back then, too? You must have been loading that up into databases.
1: It was proprietary. Uh, it was so the it was a piece of software called Hydrolog, and I could be I could be wrong about. I, I hope I'm, I'm not wrong about that. Hydrologic was the company anyway. It was a, a UK-based company, and it was a proprietary database. And um, the the Hydrolog software was specifically. It just allowed you to um, interrogate the numbers to, I guess, to be able to kind of like what would be kind of to do bucket analysis on them as well. And to kind of like reduce the, the sort of the cardinality to to analyze the data over long periods of time and, and to be able to do things like graphing and, and um, plotting multiple data sets against the graphs. A lot of the analysis was still done very, very manually. So part of the job that I used to do was I would print charts for um for for the the hydrologists and the hydrologists would would look would sit and look at the charts and they were literally you know looking for trends on on the charts there wasn't a, a way that you could kind of write some queries in r or something like that and and kind of be able to sort of pull out or um, automatically analyze anom- anomalies like you you could these days
0: so when you get back to university you're, you're taking a software track at yeah. that point and you're And you're finishing. And what are you thinking about now as you're finishing your degree? Because you've got this great job, right? But I have to imagine at this point you want to do more as you're coming out of university. So what's happening there?
1: So I think life kind of threw another curveball. So my my intention was I, I I really loved working for the environment agency. I I loved kind of living in the north of England as well because it was you know it's a beautiful place and. I had the opportunity that I'd be out in the countryside and and stuff like that, and and I was really interested in the the direction that was going on at the Environment Agency because there was this thing called the internet, which all of a sudden started to crop up, and and that fascinated me, like literally fascinated me the the, the ability to, to to kind of have this communication, and I'd always kind of like dug that you know like played around with CB radios and stuff when I was a kid and. We, we kind of would do like LAN parties and stuff in, in the early days of, of computing, but being able to like remotely connect machines over telephone lines, I, I found just like mind-blowingly fascinating. So I got a phone call one day and it was from, from a recruitment agent. I don't remember how they got my details, but, but ultimately it was would I be interested in interviewing for a company Called Lost Boys in Amsterdam, and Lost Boys was a one of the media or new media agencies uh, in 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 working in Amsterdam. So the opportunity was there that I I go and work in Amsterdam. I work for a great company, and the the pay was more money than I've ever seen in my entire life. Right? I mean, like as a as a as a young kid in his twenties, this was this was just crazy money. So. I'm like, hang on, so I can go and live in another country. I'm like, yes. And I can earn a lot of money. They're like, yes. And I'm like, and I'm doing a job building stuff for the internet. I'm like, yes. I'm like, sign me up. I mean seriously, <laughs> right? Like so I had my my girlfriend I had a girlfriend in the UK at the time and I'm like, I'm moving to Amsterdam and um and it was pretty much a decision as easy as that. So I, I literally, I graduated. I had my graduation party. And the following day, I was on a plane to, to Amsterdam. I had probably about 200 pounds in my pocket. I had no accommodation. I had a, a laptop, a pile of books, and some clothes. And, and literally, that's
0: all I had. I'm going to interrupt you for a second. I got too many questions right now. <laughs> yeah. What did your girlfriend say when you said you're moving? Did she? I imagine she had a life where you were. Did she move yeah. with you, or was well, it over? Like that was it? So I'm I mean,
1: now a little bit unfair. I think when I said I'm moving, it wasn't like, "Hey, I'm moving." It was, it was like, "There's this opportunity," and so it was originally, "We can," you know, "We can, we can do do this and live in a different country and experience a, a different culture." But uh, she was studying law, and, and it just like it. Um, she wanted to move to London so that's what happened there so I moved to Amsterdam she moved to London and uh, eventually yeah it it kind of everything fell fell apart but but I think it was absolutely the right thing to do because again I met so many people who were like helped me along my way so there there was a chap from Yorkshire called Paul Etchells who I was working with and he was a super smart engineer and and like I learned so much from him and I was working with all of these really talented sort of professional software engineers. I'm a blagger, right? I'm not a professional software engineer. I've just left college. And, and we got all of these like professional software engineers. I just got, you know, it was a learning curve. Like there was a learning curve on a number of things. One was you can't just move to another country and find a flat to live in. And you can't do that with 200 pounds. So like for the first, I would say, month, I was living in this hellhole of a hotel, and it was the only place that I could afford. And it was eighteen guilders a night, which was about seven pounds or something. And there were there were mice, and there was graffiti on the wall, and it was shed. I mean, it was it was it was a hovel. It was a total slum, right? But it didn't matter because I it I a I could afford to live there, and, and B that wasn't important. The important thing was I was I was working, I was learning. At sort of assimilating this whole new culture as well of a different country, which was just mind-blowing.
0: Your parents, did, were your parents involved at that point? Did you tell them what you were doing? I, I'm curious what their feedback was because I remember I was going to do something similar and my mom was like, you can't do that. You, you don't have the means to do something like that, right? And that could have a big influence on that decision.
1: I don't, I don't remember, I'll be honest with you. I, I mean, I would have had the conversation with them. I wasn't I wasn't living at home at the time, but I think I'm pretty sure my dad would have thought that I had rocks in my head. And um, I probably didn't even tell him that I, I didn't have any accommodation sorted out because he, he definitely would have thought I had rocks in my head because he would have realized that you can't, you know, it's not just as easy as turning up in a new country. And, and um, they were ultimately supportive of, you know, I was finding the, the, the thing that I loved to do. And that was the important thing, right? So for them... They they would support that. However, it was they they've always been like super like laid back and like you know they're your mistakes to make. It's like we'll kind of pick you up when you uh, when you make them. But it's important for I think to make those mistakes. Um, you you learn.
0: But but I think you must have had in your head like I have to I have to, I just have to get through the first four weeks because at that point I got a big paycheck coming and I can deal with it, right?
1: Well, yeah, I mean that was hard, right? I mean so. I, I barely had enough money to eat. Uh, thankfully, the the company that I was working for, they, they did free lunches. So, you know, like Google weren't the ones to invent the free lunch. It, it's, um, it, it predates the, a lot of that. So they did free lunches. So basically, if, if, um, if they didn't do free lunches, I wouldn't have ate because I literally only had enough money for, um, to, to pay the hotel bill and and nothing nothing else so i i really needed that first paycheck and in retrospect i'm i'll be honest with you i'm really pleased that i didn't know how the world operated because i didn't have the money i probably wouldn't have taken the job and gone over there because i I didn't have the money to rent flat and i didn't have the, the money to do this because i didn't have i was ignorant of all of that
0: ignorance is like, bliss right <laughs> right
1: i'm like i mean i'm not lying to you honestly like I didn't even have a hotel booked, right? I got off a plane at Schiphol Airport. I took a train to downtown Amsterdam. I walked around, walked into a bunch of hotels, realized I really didn't have the money to pay for, for those. Because I couldn't, again, there was no internet. I couldn't have just looked up the prices on the internet beforehand, right? I could have done some research if I was smart, but I wasn't. Um, and I, I, was, I remember walking around the streets of Amsterdam and thinking, I'm going to sleep in the park tonight. Because I don't have anywhere to stay and look it was summer so when I when I spotted um, this place which was called the hotel Hotel White House Hotel de Wittus, and it looked like a total dump and literally I spotted it and I'm like I can afford to stay there I'm sure I can and um, and I was I was right but you know if you don't mind the mice and the dirt and the graffiti and and the, the other residents
0: I imagine this has stayed with you forever and it's influenced you in ways of when you meet other people that maybe you, you connect with that or in the same similar, you want to help them a little bit more, right? Like talk about some of that. Um, I mean, I, th- I think so. I mean,
1: I think, you know, the, the ultimate thing about like hindsight is that when you've been through experiences yourself, it definitely gives you empathy towards others who have, you know, similar, similar experiences. Um, I mean, I was, you know, I was from a working class background. We, we didn't grow up with, we weren't, Broke, but we we didn't have huge amounts of of money, big houses, and flash cars. um It was very modest. I think it does in some ways. Ultimately, I was just raised and brought up to 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 give a darn about other people. You know, that w- it was something that my parents were like. They were very much like that. They would always be helping people out, even though they didn't have a huge amount of themselves. It was just the way that people were. I think and. I suppose that's where I got it from more so than my own misadventure.
0: I'm not going to say I was at the level, extreme level you were at, but I mean, I, I when I was in university, I had to decide sometimes what what I was going to eat and what day I was going to eat, right? Because my, my parents didn't have means either, and I and I couldn't really go to them. I had four other sisters too, and I didn't want to go to them, right? So I, I think that's influenced me with this idea that it, destroys me when somebody can't access something they need not want but need because of money like i hate money to be honest with you i just hate the whole idea of it in terms of need so so for me right it's this
1: and and i think that it's about opportunity and and for me i think you know i'm not like i'm not against billionaires being billionaires like for the most part billionaires have 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 earned where they've got to they you know they've, they've had an idea they've had a unique they've worked hard like i don't care about that the thing for me is that everybody should have the opportunity if they so choose to do that and and i think this is what's great about the industry that we work in because knowledge is the commodity you you don't necessarily need money you just need the knowledge and knowledge is also really really free to give to people it costs you nothing to give knowledge to somebody else. It's it's no hardship on on my on my family, and it's no hardship on me. It's not like I'm keeping industrial secrets, and, and I think that's really important. And that's I, I you know I try my best. I always like try that if I learn something to to share that because if it helps one more person, then then that's a good thing. And and when it comes to I think like. Being able to get people to raise themselves up, if you can equip them with the knowledge, enable them to to get that first job or to get that promotion to be able to help themselves, then that's wonderful but that's that's just like you know leveling up society and um
0: yeah, I agree you can't just give people everything they but I think time is worth more than money sometimes like and, and to help that person you have to give your time like so yeah it's not really free right like you can do whatever you want in the next hour that's your yeah. choice how are you going to spend the next hour of your life you,
1: you got to think about time as well right and and i'll be honest with you i waste plenty of time like don't get me don't get me wrong i could i could literally just spend an hour twiddling with something and it'll you know be gone like or I play a video game or something like that for an hour. So so I think it's about sort of looking at the time that you have. And I think when people waste a lot more time than they realize. So, I mean, I think, that, you know, the key thing is you, you should spend time with your families and you should spend time with the people that you love. And, and that's like, that's just, that's what you should do. That's life. But but I think when you, when I look at it and I'm like, do I really need to watch that show on the TV? Or I could maybe spend thirty minutes um help helping somebody out. And and I think that's that's kinda like the balance. Um the balance for me. I don't you know, I I don't watch a huge amount of T V and, and stuff like that. So and um so yeah, I, I think I think there's there's always time if you look hard enough. And and it doesn't take much. Like literally, this is what I kinda like Say to a lot of people, is like you, you kind of you will know something that somebody else doesn't, and if you are spend twenty seconds answering a question on Stack Overflow or, or wherever it may be, that that can massively help help somebody to move move forward. They they might have been stuck in a rut for ages, and um, so you don't have to spend a huge amount of time either.
0: You no, know, I, I always say four hours a week can change the world. Four hours a week, if everybody yeah. gave just four hours, right? Uh, f- four days, one hour a day, right, of the business week, and you get the other one off. You, yeah. you would you would absolutely change the world. I was actually having this conversation with my fiance this weekend because we were just we were like just dropped dead on Saturday and we just were watching TV all day and I looked at it and I said. I feel guilty right now because I'm just not being productive. And she said, Bill, there are times where you really literally need to shut down for a day as well. Like if you're not doing that, you're not going to be effective either.
1: She's a real smart lady. And that, that is, you know, that's very, very true. I think, I don't know why the, the, the thing in the airplane sticks in my mind, but you know where it's like, put your own mask on before you put the mask on the baby type thing. Sometimes like if you if you burn out, you can't help anybody. And And I think this is the other thing that like, I don't know if it's just me, but but I find this industry, it can be really exhausting sometimes. I mean, like, it's it's really difficult to switch off, specifically when you're dealing with a, a complicated problem. Like the amount of times I've woken up at four o'clock in the morning, got out of bed and went downstairs to my computer, because I've just figured out what my my problem was. And nine times out of ten, it's something stupid, but. Like the, the key thing about that is that my brain's not sleeping. It's continually kind of running through a problem and, and, and it can be really tiring as well. Like I think this pandemic for me has been really weird considering it's like so much time where I haven't had to do a, half the things that I've ordinarily had to do. I've just found it exhausting, like mentally
0: exhausting. What happens to me, and my fiancé is learning it now, is she'll see me sitting on the couch just staring into space, and she's like, what are you doing? And I go, everything I can not to get on the computer, because if I get on the computer right now and I get into that zone, we're going to lose four or five hours. And she knows it. She sees when I'm intense and she's just like, okay, I lost Bill for the last four or five hours. It's the same kind of thing, right? Like I want to solve this problem yeah. no matter how long it takes.
1: Yeah, and, and, I, and I'll be honest with you. Like, that's actually one of the things that I find really appealing about working in, in sort of the, with computer science and you know, computer computer industry. Like, I, I genuinely enjoy the problem solving. Like, when stuff's easy. It's like, it's great. But I really like the stuff where I just can't figure out why something doesn't work. And you've got to do the reason, you know, are digging into it. And I find that fascinating.
0: So let's get back to this job in Amsterdam now. So yeah. how long were you at this? How long were you at that job?
1: Well, I was, I was so living in Amsterdam for eight months. Um, well, maybe more, actually. I, uh, maybe closer on to a year, I think, um, or just shy of. And then what I did was they opened an office in London. So I, I had the opportunity to to go work for them in London. So I moved, that, that was the plan. And that was when I, I actually got. Um, while I was waiting for them to set up their office in London, I was approached by a company called uh, Razorfish, and they were a big global new media agency as well. And sadly, a lot of these great companies kind of disappeared during the the dot com boom um, bust. But um, you know, again, some great people, and and I remember working with with some really, really just in absolutely fascinatingly intelligent people and um, so I ended up working for them instead of Lost Boys because it was I was selfish right I mean I was hungry as well I wanted to I wanted to achieve I wanted to kind of work my way up and learn and um, and being pretty much being the only developer in the UK office I'm not going to learn that way i got to you, you know I've got to be working with people smarter than me and and um, and and Razorfish afforded that opportunity because it was, again, it was like the brightest sort of people in, in the industry. And um, I was like, I'd be, I'd be foolish to turn that down.
0: Did you not like Amsterdam that you were thinking going back to London? Is, and is this razor, Razorfish you say, are they in London or are they in Amsterdam? So yeah, so they were in London. So I, I,
1: I really liked Amsterdam. I thought it was such a, a really pleasant city. The The thing I love about, the Netherlands in general is just how welcoming the Dutch people are. I mean, it literally blew my mind that, that I would go out for a drink with six Dutch people and they would speak English, even if I was not part of the conversation, they were speaking English between themselves so that I was included so that I could join the conversation if if I wanted to. And that like, that blew my mind. Right. That I've never seen that before. So, and, and the architecture and it's such a, you know, beautiful city and the food is great. And like, but, but ultimately what I found myself doing was like, I was flying back to the UK, like every, every weekend, every other weekend. And it was just draining and, and sort of trying to sort of like figure out whether to set up a life in the UK or whether into London. And, um and it, it was just kind of like really, really draining. So eventually sort of, I sort of decided that you know London was going to be the place where where I would be, and we'd try and make a life there and uh, as I say, like it all fell apart, but for in everything in retrospect, if, if it hadn't i wouldn't have met my wife et etc et etc
0: well why were you flying back
1: because i had um so I had a flat in London and a flat in Amsterdam, and my my girlfriend at the time was was living in london um so I wanted to kind of spend time in, in as well you know i was I was living alone in um in, in Amsterdam, and you can't go out for drinks every night with with friends, and and I, I don't really like living alone. I'll be, I'll be honest with you. It's like sometimes I like peace and quiet, but I I quite like I'm a, I'm a sociable person. Sometimes, so I I didn't really enjoy kind of like living living my own as well, and um, when you don't have any friends or family and stuff like that around you so much, so it was. It, when the opportunity came up to to kind of do the same job, but but in a city where I've got sort of friends and family, then then that's pretty impressive. Plus, like, London's a hell of a city. I'm, I mean, it's I, I've travelled a lot, and um, I think London is, is one of the greatest cities on the planet. I mean, you, you've got everything: you've got theatre, you've got music, you've got great nightlife, you've you've got sort of museums and art and culture, and and as a as a kid in your 20s, when you, you get the opportunity to live in a city like that and you've got a few few quid in your pocket to be able to enjoy yourself, it's, it's a beautiful place to live.
0: I, I'm with you. Really I mean, exciting. I grew up in New York, but I am fascinated by London. But I, when people that I meet grew up in London, they're fascinated by New York. It's like these two cities kind of compete for <laughs> that top spot. But I, I totally hear you.
1: Yeah, New york too i mean new york's a, a very special city, and it's it's just kind of it's i think it's just there's a vibe right and and london was Amsterdam was lovely i mean it was but it was i would never say it was exciting, but i always like i thought London was exciting right i mean um you go out to a club or a bar or something like that and so i don't i don't regret um i mean evidently not i've been here for like twenty twenty two years now so it it's um a pretty nice place to live but yeah that's that's pretty much how it it kind of started all
0: right so how long are you at this company and, and what are you doing there is it anything new or different or it's the same kind of stuff just in a different environment
1: yeah so it's it's pretty much the same kind of stuff so the the internet at the time was predominantly like front-end driven it was kind of like interface developer i believe the, the my title was at the time so i was i was predominantly building html I don't even remember if CSS was a thing.
0: This has to be around 2002, 2004, you think? Uh,
1: 99, 2000. But it was interesting, right? I mean, I remember the first project that I was working on. And again, this is like heavily influences me is I was working on a a project at Razorfish. And what we were doing was we were building a user interface for a set-top box for Italian TV. And the Italian TV were like doing this prototype of basically TV on demand over the, the internet, right? Or over cable. And we built the user interface in HTML on a, a customized Netscape browser. And that abuse of the technology really interested me. You can take this material and you don't just have to use it for... For building websites you can bend it and you can manipulate it to do other things like like using html for for ui on set top boxes that was you know, it was pretty far out there in in sort of um the year 2000
0: no way out there i mean really looking at i mean and the networks really weren't ready the browsers really weren't ready the tech wasn't ready how far did you get with that project
1: i mean it was a it was a prototype I I don't recall actually what um, what sort of happened. That was one of the things about working in a company like Razorfish. You you tended to move around projects, so you'd you know you you were internal teams, and you'd go in, you'd do do the some work on it, and then you'd you'd be off on a different project. So I I don't know what happened to it. I I'll be honest with you, like I think what we did was great, but I think in the like. In retrospect, due to the limitations of the technology, like you know the the hardware of the machines and, and things like that, and, and the bandwidth, it probably was the right product at the wrong time.
0: Yeah, a lot of things had to still be invented too. You probably didn't have the yeah. encoders and the decoders for the video. You had to figure all that out.
1: So interestingly, there there was a company. I don't know if they're still kicking around, but like, do you remember Real Player? I think so. So like, Real um, Real Player. I think they had a video encoding piece of software as well, but um, certainly they had audio encoding. It was the kind of tech that you don't miss, but it was it was revolutionary for the time. I mean, it was incredible that somebody did this
0: then, right? And you had to be more and you had to be more efficient with what you were doing with that tech and the algorithms, right? Like that gets super interesting. Right? We can be a little bit lazier today.
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, for sure. At the time. You had to be super efficient because if you if you didn't write the HTML in a in a really optimized way, the computer, the destination would just crumble. I mean, you know, they they your people were running it on terrible computers. The, the bandwidth, if you were you were running like 56k modem, so you're looking like 3k a second or something as a as like a downstream. You've got to be super optimized in in what you're sending to the browser as well. You kind of uh everything had to be hyper optimized. And then there was the complexities as well, because the there was there was no standardization between sort of the different browsers. Like Netscape was different from Internet Explorer. Internet Explorer on the Macintosh was totally different from Internet Explorer on Windows, which literally just blew my mind how like IE5 on a Mac used a total different um box model to to kind of like IE, IE5 on, on Windows. Um, the differences between like the JavaScript accesses, like, you know, one's using get element by ID, one's like document.all, like how I even remember that
0: pain. Because um, <laughs> it was painful. I remember some of it. <laughs> and I was the same way. I was like, what's going on here? Why is this not working in the other browser? Oh my God.
1: <laughs> Half your code was like if user agent equals. I mean, that was like, but wasn't that the best thing about jQuery at the time when it came out? Like, oh my word! I mean, seriously. Like jQuery revolutionized the 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 absolutely revolutionized the world because they they did something really really smart, which was they they took the differences between the different object models, different box models, and they just kind of put a, a standardization on it. It just made it accessible. You, you know, you didn't need a A degree in astrophysics to be able to write a web page that ran across a bunch of different environments anymore you could just use jquery and and the it was actually so sane so like massive props to to the jquery um authors for for doing that it was
0: brilliant i agree they saved my life they saved my life because i was coding on ie thinking i'm coding in a browser and no idea had no idea at the time all right. So, how long are you at Razorfish, and then what happens from there? So, Razorfish um, was was well. Unfortunately,
1: the the dot com bust happened, and um, and Razorfish was a was a big company, which was basically all of their work just dried up. So, they they had an opportunity internally where where people had the opportunity to take voluntary redundancy, and and I needed a deposit for a house and voluntary redundancy was that deposit for a house. So I, I left, decided to leave there, took voluntary redundancy and, and, um, and probably took the most interesting role in my, in my career and the one which literally set, set my life up, which was working for um, a little agency uh, out of West London called State Digital. And it was a little four-person agency I was working for them, and I was kind of like lead developing, designing the system. They were producing software for the the events industry, um, which, like as an industry is not massively interesting to me, but the the complexity of the the technology and what they want to do, I'm like, I could really see how I could abuse and bend some of this modern technology to to do some some interesting stuff, and like most importantly. My future wife worked in the office next door. So, like, when you start to look at, like, the whole synergies of, like, why things happen in life, not going to say any of those decisions were wrong because they, they kind of led me to, to where, where I am.
0: And how long were you there? Uh, that's now, like, you're there for, like, I'm imagining now you're going to be there for a few years. You're, you're enjoying that work. There's a lot of work to do. You're a small shop. You got to kind of experience the startup.
1: Yeah, I was there for good few years and we had a great time as well like it was a really sort of um friendly you know we'd go out we'd go for drinks and and food and stuff and um so I i really really enjoyed working with with the folks there
0: you got the tech working yeah
1: the tech was great
0: i imagine but so now you're doing both software so you're doing both software and operations at this point i imagine because it's such a small shop you're doing everything right
1: yeah i mean i was working I was also doing some server-side programming at the time as well with with like PHP and ASP. Um, but this was like the first real thing because what we were building is software as a service because we we built a, a platform that people could embed into their websites. So I kind of like, I figured out a way that if I abused JavaScript includes, then what I could do is I could actually render our, um, our server-side platform inside of somebody's website. So you would literally just put a JavaScript include in your, uh, in your front-end page, and all of the, like, the exhibitor lists and the floor plans and things like that were rendered on our server, but they were they were kind of sent sent through the, the, um, the abuse of, of um, JavaScript includes. And so I, we were running a back-end server, and we had, like, multi-tenant and multiple clients, And I literally remember one of the first kind of like things I did, which was like an opsy thing, I suppose. And that was the the server kept running out of memory. And there was no metrics or monitoring, but we kind of roughly worked out that once a day, this thing would run out of memory. So I wrote a little um, application, which just rebooted the server every night at midnight. And because we were localized to Europe, it solved the memory leak. And um a little bit further down the road I realized why the server was was running out of memory and and it was because I was actually leaking memory in my um my ActiveX com object. But um I which I fixed. Uh but but it was just interesting, right? I mean it was just like you just did everything that needed to be done to to get to get the job done. Um and and we were really successful. Like we'd cornered the market and it was a great piece of technology for the time. I remember writing um, an, an image resizing service in Java servlets using uh, JAI, Java uh, something, something imaging library, because you had to, because there was no, like, image resize API. So you, you had to build your own. And um, and that was, that was, like, super interesting as well. So you, you're maintaining... We were running microservices, I suppose, kind of ahead of its time. We had the the, um, the floor plan generation application. We had the, the exhibitor list application, and we had the, um, the image manipulation app. And did we do that deliberately because we saw that this is kind of like decoupled, decentralized application technology? It was like, no, no, we didn't because we had bits of stuff in, in kind of cold fusion, bits of stuff in... ASP and bits of stuff in Java. We were basically just using whichever technology allowed us to um, perform the task that we wanted. So it, the, it, and it just worked.
0: best tool for the job, which happened to be different tech. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: And again, it was ignorance, right? I mean, didn't know any better. So we just kind of had a good guess and moved along.
0: I don't think it's ignorance. I think it's it's engineering at us at a productivity level right it's we, ha- we got to get this thing done that thing already gave us 80% of it why you know I, so I don't think it's ignorant I think it's the right engineering definitely at the time yeah so what happens now like you're you're at this place for a few years and you met your uh, wife there what causes you to move on from this company what's the next one
1: so she, she had um, her own business. So she was, um, she's a mathematician, statistician. She'd been running her own business, which was doing um, data processing and statistical analysis. And some the industry that she was working in were the, it was the motor industry. So she was working with a lot of, um, uh, on pro- projects which would kind of do the assessments of prototype vehicles for for the big motor manufacturers. So originally this was a paper-based industry and she had this idea and she was like why can't we like make this digital? And we were just having a conversation one day and she's like do you think you could make this digital? Like is it possible? And I kind of sat down and I thought about it and I was like I was like yeah, I've got an idea of how something, you know, something could work. We could we could build a system. So she had uh, a guy working with a chap named Nick conveniently uh (laughs) brilliant engineer really smart guy and so we just sat down and we were just like well if we did this and we did this we we think we could like build this platform which would replace the pen and paper and it would allow change and change was the major the major sort of thing right it was always like everything was last minute everything needed to be changed really quickly you can't reprint several thousand paper-based questionnaires really quickly so and then you've got to like data enter them manually, and then there's the accuracy problems. Well, that all goes away if you just have the sort of the digital source in the first place. So we we built this system. We we learned a lot by building the first version of the system, and we we sort of learned and built the second version of the system, and eventually, um, I went to work with my wife for the old time, and we we kind of then migrated the system to the third version which was moving it on to, to iPads and android devices and it was just super super interesting and um you know, getting to work for yourself traveling the world really really great piece of software it was like the art, your own architect it was hard work i mean like it was you know it was hard hard work but it was really rewarding at the same time because it was so many different component parts and so many different interesting things to learn i mean i learned how to sort of program c++ and how to kind of program um objective c for for ios and again still building the back-end technologies in .net which which worked really great and then all of the like the weird little side things like learning how wi-fi works and sort of thinking about the architectural problems of how to to build an application that is fault tolerant because you're, you're running Wi-Fi in these large exhibition halls. Wi-Fi really wasn't very good. Like the people would do stuff, like literally the amount of times I'd, I'd have somebody would just unplug everything. And like you know, all my Wi-Fi would go down, all my computers would go down just because somebody's just pulled out a cable on the other side of the room and you're just like, so you have to build all of this problem into the system and and that's where it starts to get interesting because you you know you got to think about how can i ensure that the system works when the server is not connected you can't just have 50 or 100 people stop dead because it's, timelines are so tight you've got to keep keep rolling and people want their data they want to do the analysis and get it
0: so you were literally touching every i mean this project touched every type of device every layer of computing with all the fault yeah. tolerance in these pretty hostile environments, but so that's huge because that understanding and background of all that tech helps with your complete understanding. I have to imagine moving forward, and you're still married. So how was it working with your wife for those years, right? Because it was great. It was good. Yeah, I mean,
1: I you know you always have. It's natural to have say di- yeah disagreement and, and debate. That that's healthy, I think. Um. It's difficult to have a disagreement at work and not take things home. So sure, we, we, you know, we have a like fair share of arguments, but it's been 18 years, so it's obviously nothing too, too disastrous, I think, from, from that regard. I think it's about tolerance, and I think my wife is probably the most tolerant person that you're ever likely to, to, to meet.
0: You know, you're wearing two hats with her. You have a business partner and you have your wife, right? And I have a business partner who I love to death. And we don't argue anymore, right? Like we know, we learned after five years that nothing's personal and we don't have to worry about each other. We can have a disagreement. We can even get loud, but it's never personal. But I do get to go home and separate myself from, from the business, right? And you don't. So that to me is interesting because that, that it's, it's difficult when you don't have the escape. That you sometimes need yeah, but I mean I think
1: I, I'll just like absorb myself into a, into a problem so I don't I don't really like to switch off if you know what I mean like when I, when I'm kind of thinking about something when I'm trying to work something out, I, I'm quite happy that it just consumes me permanently and and actually I probably work work my best that way and, and if anything, when I'm stopped from doing that, that's when I get like irritable because I, I find that I just can't switch off. I'm constantly trying to think about something. I just wanna solve the problem and, and then get, get on. Um but but I think it was good. I mean like the business was was doing really well. Um we were having a lot of fun and 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 it was, you know, we were employing people as well and, and that was great. Being able to like give people a start in life as well. So everything was was pretty was pretty pretty good. I mean wouldn't change a thing for a while.
0: All right. So we got 12 minutes left and there's still a bit I want to cover. What happens to this business? You're, you've got employees, it's growing. The tech is working. What happens that the business, or at least you walk away from the business or is the business now gone?
1: So it was, it was really sad. And we, so we, what we went from thinking we were, we were going to open up an office in probably Los Angeles and we were looking at how we could kind of figure out how to kind of maintain like a european office in, in london and open up an office in, in l.a to to be able to serve um, the american market because traveling back and forth was was costly and it was it was very time consuming and draining and and then the recession happened and one of the things that got hit really heavily was the automotive sector so we we got hit really heavily from the automotive sector and the work almost disappeared I mean, it completely dried up
0: is this 2008 2008 2009 something like that
1: yeah it was a, the big global recession I mean yeah. it was like the you know the subprime mortgage recession yeah that was that time um, 2008, 2008 and the other thing that had a real big problem was we we did a lot of work for the the UK government as well and the UK government went into austerity so they they totally clamped down so we we just kind of let all of the work just dried up and, and you kind of try and do bits and pieces, but we were really specialized. So it, it was kind of difficult. So we, we took some time and actually thought, you know, let's take this an opportunity and let's do some re-architecture on the software and, and let's think about, can we actually market the software as, as, a, as an independent entity and, and sell software rather than selling the service? um and that was a that was a big you know big thought but it was just really difficult and i think we you know we, we kept things going my, my wife only um retired from the business uh, a couple of years ago so it you know it kept going for a long time after that but i think like the thing that i love to do the, the work was disappearing so i decided that like if i go take a job working for another company then it helps sort of see, I don't then take a salary from the business. It lowers the risk on us as a family because we've got an external income. And and ultimately I, I wanted to do software engineering and I was I was kind of missing, missing that. Um, I didn't like, I find myself when I don't have a focus, if I don't have a drive or a kind of a deadline, I'm just not like really, really productive. So if you give me like 12 months to go and do something without really any deadline, I'll probably spend 11 months walking around the problem and then spend the last month kind of just cramming. So yeah, I I moved on and um, went to to work um, for a, I'm trying to think who I was working for. I think it was a a local company called The Listening Company, um, who was a a contract, um, they provide external services for contact center and they had an internal piece of software which they they wanted uh, somebody to come in and do some some engineering work and, and I was running the engineering teams over there as an engineering manager
0: now what's what's what I want to get to we got like 8 minutes left here i yeah. know you as somebody who is an educator whether that's at a conference doing a talk or doing workshops um I feel like we have very similar backgrounds in the fact that we're doing all of this software development and some similar stuff around the same time. And maybe we both somehow transition into being an educator. I want to know how that happened in the in the last kind of eight minutes we have. And did you always have a passion for that too?
1: I think it was something that I found. So I, I started doing, I worked for a couple of companies. I was doing engineering management. So I wasn't a software engineer as such anymore. I was doing Sort of running engineering teams um, and head of engineering and things like that, and and ultimately, what I discovered from doing that was that the thing that I enjoyed the most was being able to help people, and and I found that that was when, actually, I was probably the most use. I could I could kind of bring technical my technical interests and knowledge, and be able to to kind of help people to. To get along and and help the the organization as well like the, the stuff that i really didn't enjoy so much was i mean just things like holiday approvals right i mean like i'm just like why'd you pay me to approve somebody's holidays i'd never understood that like i could not understand why an organization wanted me to spend my time and my money doing something such simple as approving holiday requests and expenses and and ultimately i didn't i used to just give people my password and i was just like just approve your own holidays and your own expenses I, <laughs> I just don't don't tell anybody um i trust you and but but um i think that was really interesting to me and then so i worked for a couple of companies and i had that that's when i started to really take this as a mindset of something that i could do as a job because i didn't think it was a job right and and I had a fortune the fortunate opportunity that I could move um, into a role in a job that I was working in where I was spending my time helping people just with the best practices of, of writing software and, and like helping out teams and kind of just going in and helping them solve problems not having to do things like approve holidays and, and deal with sort of skirmishes for, for want of a better word between between different people and kind of like the not that I hated doing that or I was bad at it it was just if I could concentrate on one thing and that that ultimately made me realize that I was never going to do engineering management or people management or anything like that ever again in my entire life because I didn't have to do it because there was a, another you know another another option and and ultimately that's what led me to to working at, at HashiCorp and you know through through love of sort of distributed systems development and, and actually as a as a user of their tools i which i really loved and the, the kind of the, the 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 user experience and the mentality that went into them and how they worked really resonated i was genuinely fortunate to to get a role um at at HashiCorp as as a developer advocate and it was literally i I spotted the um the job advert when I was doing some research on I think I was working out how to like deploy AWS lambda with with terraform and I'm like oh hashicorp hiring and I clicked on the link and it's like oh developer advocate what's that all about I'm like oh well that sounds like exactly what I do and what I really enjoy doing and I really love their tools so I wonder if they'd consider me so I you know I just emailed them never heard anything totally forgot about it I get a phone call one day um, from Armand and Armand's like, hey, I'm in London. Sorry, we, you know, we're a small company. We we did see your advert, but would you like to meet up for coffee and have a chat about the, the role? And I was like, great. I'll be there in, you know, an hour and a half. So I dashed across London, um, went and met Armand for coffee who didn't even really know who he was, you know. Um, got on really great with him. It turns out like, I mean, I genuinely think that both Mitchell and Armand are like genius. They're, they're, they're just they're, like thought process is, is just mind blowing to me. And the opportunity to work for that company was literally beyond my wildest dreams, right? I mean, like the fact that I can work for this company that I respect for these people who I, I think are just incredibly intelligent, incredibly of the right mindset. Uh, and that I get the opportunity to help people and get paid for it.
0: And you were one of the first, were you one of their first DevRels then? or were- No,
1: so Seth, Seth was the first um, developed DevRel and, and he went on to to work um, in engineering at Google. But uh, it was predominantly, so it was originally, it was me and Seth. We were, I suppose you would say permanent developer relations and Mitchell and Armon. Would, would obviously do a huge amount of um, developer relations like you know they're out at conferences and talking I mean they created the the products and they were still working on on the product and Mitchell still does contribute to the sort of the the, the, the production code base and check out the commits and you'll see that and I'm on two as well and but it was the, kind of like the four of us as a small group but the intention was that the developer relations group would would grow um so so yeah, I was I was kind of like second Devrel, or technically the fourth Devrel because if you if you think the original were, was Mitchell and Armon.
0: So I'm curious because you were on a management path before this. Did you end up taking a salary cut to do this or everything was still competitive even though it was a different?
1: So that was the thing, right? Because the the world changed. So at the time like literally and I've never agreed with this. But at the time, the only way you could earn more money was you had to go into management. And I never understood it. I'm like, well, why can't management and engineering are different? It's different skills. It's, one's not lesser than the other. Why, would, why does a manager get paid more than, a, than an engineer? I don't think it's so much true now, but it, certainly then it was, right? It was literally, there was a very predefined career path. And I, I wanted a nicer house and I wanted a newer car. So to do that, I've, you've got to earn more money and there's only really one way to do it and that was engineering management. But at the time, then things started to pivot and, and I think the, the kind of the, the role of individual contributor started to be recognized and, and it, it was realized that probably because of the expansion of, of um, engineering, that, that an engineer could get paid the same as a manager so it it made it um available to me i'll be honest with you i don't think i could have taken the pay cut i when mean, i could have done but i i like where i live and i like sort of all all of those things so it, it, i would probably have sacrificed if um and and continued along the sort of the engineering sort of leadership route if if i hadn't been able to
0: to take the side step oh so that's fantastic yeah you know i know my whole career and i had kids when i was really really young like i wanted to make moves i wanted to do this but i mean when you got mouths to feed and you have you know you have to sometimes you got to do things you don't want to do and you got to stay where you want to stay um i feel like you and i have had a very similar track and some same some of the similar constraints. Here, here's my last question. Yeah. I didn't realize how much of a software engineer you were because when I met you, you were doing right a lot of operational stuff and you were talking about how to deploy things. And it's fascinating that you're... I just didn't realize it. So have you done any engineering on the products over there at HashiCorp as part of this job? I have to imagine that you would be in it a real asset to that since you're using the tools all the time?
1: I mean, it's very limited. I mean, you will, you'll, you know, you'll find commits of mine in, in a bunch of different products. I'll, I, I will help out where I can. It, I would say it's less so now because the, the organization's bigger and more formal than it, than it used to be. Um, but I think it's about, Sort of the specialization, so you need, from a Devrel perspective, you can provide the feedback and and maybe that's the most effective use of your time rather than sort of sort of going direct um, so I think that's kind of like one of the things that we we do. I think like engineering and product at hashicorp are pretty good I mean we are not pretty good I mean that's that's being modest that I think they're really good about kind of trying to figure out what the direction should be. And, you know, everywhere you don't always get it right first time, but but I think it's about sort of trying to provide the insight around the the use of the tool, such as, you know, from simple things like, well, you have to deploy it in this particular way. And then there's this catch twenty two that you need to get the key before you can launch the service and et cetera. And that causes friction with this, et cetera, et cetera being able to kind of provide that, that feedback and and kind of have the, hopefully the little inputs and minor little tweaks into the product um, is, is helpful. But, but I think mostly it's, it's about letting people get the best use out of the tooling and, and systems development doing nothing but getting more complicated. I mean, it's, I think there'll come a point where it starts to get simpler, but it's just increasing in complexity. There's, there's just, you've got to know a lot of stuff to be able to do things these days, um, like from Kubernetes to Prometheus and Terraform to deploy your infrastructure and then software development as well. I mean, hey, you know, there's there's so many different things. So I'd like to think that, like, my experience of just doing a lot of those things brings it together that I I was an engineer. I've been the person who's suffering at two o'clock in the morning trying to get something to work. I've been the person who struggles through the documentation and crawling forums and hitting the tenth page of GitHub looking for the magic answer. And and I hope that gives me a little bit of empathy towards you know other people and maybe I can explain things in a way and hopefully helps them out and saves them a little bit of time and, and pain
0: so last question Absolute last question the future for nick here more in longs that do you see that you this is kind of the role that you want to finish your career in even if it's not at hashi corp so much like do you see yourself going back into maybe a more pure engineering mode or do you think being this mentor coach is is where you'd like to end your career
1: so i can tell you my dream and I don't know whether I'll ever achieve this or not, but but I've got a plan, and my plan is that I would, I'd like to go back to college, and I'd I'd like to to study a PhD in in computer science, predominantly distributed systems, and I'd like to teach at university. So I'm I'm hoping that at at some point, because I'm not getting any younger, but I don't you know I'm not old at the same time. Like I think i'm still enthusiastic for the industry but i'd like to 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 be to save up a little bit of money and to to go and to do that and teach teach the next generation of um of kids how to become software engineers and and do it like formally um through through to say university i'd I'd love to do that like literally that would be great i had such a good time at university i'd love to um to go back and be the educator
0: i love that idea nick you gotta you gotta make that happen man that first day in the classroom on university just big smile but you know like
1: at the same time i'm very fortunate for for where i am so i'm not um i genuinely couldn't think of anywhere else where i'd rather work right now um i i genuinely couldn't really think of a job that i'd rather do and a team that i would rather work with that you know like so I'm 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 super lucky. I mean, don't don't get me wrong. Like, I've I've been very very fortunate, and I'm very I'm very thankful for, for every opportunity that everybody has ever given me in my in my entire sort of career. So, like, if the whole university thing doesn't happen, like, you know, it wouldn't be it would be terrible to to retire from Ashiko one day.
0: Gotcha. All right. I wish we had another hour. Uh, but we're out of time. So, Nick, if anybody listening to your story uh, wants to reach out to you, have questions, or, um, you know, they feel like they're on a similar track and just want to talk, uh, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, so I'm, I'm on, I mean, probably publicly, maybe like Twitter or something. I am, I am on, um, you know, Sheriff Jackson on, on Twitter. Um, I'm also... Um, on the Gophers slack so people can you know ping me there um or the cncf slack or um if they want to just email me you know i'm jackson.nic at gmail.com and and it would be you know be a pleasure like as i said i I think the key thing we do as humans is that we've got to be thinking about the next generation so the the next generation are going to be better smarter and quicker than us our job is really to set them up for success. And if, and if there's anything that I know that can help somebody else, I'm happy to spend the time and um, give that information away.
0: Thank you, Nick. I so much appreciate your time today. Oh, thank you, Bill.
1: It's been a real fun talking to you, dude.
0: So this is Bill Kennedy with the Arden Labs podcast signing out. Please go find Nick and reach out. He's an amazing human being. Um, I love every time I get to talk to Nick, I learn something new. Uh, But this is it. Thank you. Bye.
1: Thank you so much.